HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border, coast to coast, and all the ships at sea. Streaming live from the County of Kings, Brooklyn, New York City, on the Heritage Radio Network. Are you ready for the fastest half hour on the internet today? It's the Mike and Judy Show. Spanning the globe for high-minded hijinks and low-brow kicks to bring you the best in sex, drugs, rock and roll, and nuclear vision. Too bad for radio and too good looking for television. And now, here they are, the Nichols and May of the Now Generation, your hosts, Mike Edison and Judy McGuire. Welcome to the Mike and Judy Show with my substitute, Mike, Michael Gonzalez. Michael Gonzalez. Who is, who's what? He's taking Mike Edison's place, who's draining Italy of its wine reserves. Oh, is that what he's doing? He's, well, he's in Turkey right now. He, he felt the tear gas last oh, night. Oh, lucky him. Yeah, lucky best. <laughs> <laughs> but Michael Gonzalez is um, a journalist, an essayist. Um, hopefully soon he'll write his memoir. And a short story writer. And a short story writer, and really modest and great. <laughs> a genius, almost. Almost. And, <laughs> and we have three... Delightful guests with us today. We have Chris Flash of The Shadow, which is... Um, it could be described as the underground, anarchistic, investigative journalist newspaper. We're, because that, because we're... I don't term. know if celebrating is the right word, but commemorating <coughs> the 25-year anniversary of the Tompkins Square riot, which spurred you into starting The Shadow. Right, as a result of the distorted, mainstream moron media coverage of the riot... I don't know what you're talking about. Those people <laughs> totally deserved it. <laughs> oh, God. Well, it started out, they were very sympathetic to us at first, and that we had been victimized by the police, by these pigs. And as the days went on, the, the, the editorial tone of the articles started shifting, accusing us of provoking these poor police from all over the outer boroughs into descending on Tompkins Square Park and beating the crap out of anybody that moved. Well, because much like Trayvon Martin, you guys were heavily armed, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> we had we had a helicopter and uh, yeah, yeah, and automatic weaponry. Sure, tanks. And you're here with Sheila Jameson, who is the publicist for your muse- the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space, and you guys are doing a film festival. Yes, it's going to be uh, August third uh, through the tenth, and the first the first two um, nights are going to be dedicated to the Tompkins Square riots. We have some films that Chris is supplying that have some um, authentic footage from the uh, activities in the park that those days. Because what a lot of people may not realize, who were born in like who were probably born in 1988, the East Village used to be a place for normal and you know average well, it middle was, class um, poor people the east village had been abandoned by the city because the resources were so depleted in the 70s you remember the mm-hmm. drop dead new york um there was no sanitation there was no garbage pickup there was no water supply there was no police and a lot of the landlords also abandoned the area so people just you know reclaimed you know a lot of the buildings a lot of the empty lots and built gardens and built squats provided their own services and you know now it's you know luxury land now it's like million dollar condos on Avenue D. Right. And our third guest here is is also an old time New Yorker, Michael Holman. Hey, what's up? Michael did a pivotal graffiti rock TV show that was uh, in New York, and he's running a Kickstarter to do a documentary about the um, the show. Yeah, check out Kickstarter. Type in graffiti rock, and you'll see what time it is. Because it was it was very fun back then. I mean, it was a fun time in New York, and. What's happened to, to like the fun, the music, staying out so far? Well, it was like a fun danger. It was like a thin line between fun and dangerous. But if you could get home without getting your ass kicked, it was, you know. like you know, I think if you're in your 20s, right, you're kind of fearless. Like, like it yeah, could be burnt you can't out, die. Burnt out buildings, burnt out neighborhoods, drug dealers, uh, all kinds of dangers and shit. But it's kind of like being on a movie set, like, uh, like maybe London after the Blitz. You just kind of like, just check out abandoned buildings, you're checking out the neighborhood. You're, you're not really afraid. In fact, it's extremely affordable. You have other friends your age, and you're making your own culture, art, music, <clears throat> anarchy, political activism, and you're having a great fucking time. Um, and, and you know something, for, for people who are not native New Yorkers, or for people who are native New Yorkers, you know, there, there's an there's a objectivity I had when I first came to New York in, in 1978 that I don't know that you guys even can see so much. Um, when you come to New York for the first time, especially in that, in that, at that period, New York comes off as like a theme park for really intelligent people. I mean, it's like, it's an amazing experience. Well, you find I think each that still other. exists. Yes, we, and it's, it's still there, but it's, it's, it's still it's, there. It's, it's not what it was, but, it's not what it was, but like-minded but. people do gravitate toward each other. And New York was a, very, a good incubator for uh, count, countercultural scenes, yeah, artistic all kinds endeavors. Of well, really. I, I tell you, I, I grew up in New York. And I grew up in Harlem, but I didn't discover the Lower East Side until I was like 19, 20 years old. And that was a good time, and, right? And, and it was like the early 80s. I think it was like 83. And I wandered down. One of my friends invited me to his house. I think he lived on like 8th Street and uh, Avenue B. I didn't even know Avenue B existed. And then, I, you know, all of a sudden I'm meeting all these artists and painters and writers and everybody, filmmakers, people that... Were want, that wanted to do what I wanted to do, people that, you know, we had similar influences, uh, you know, and I'm just meeting all these people, and it was just love at first sight. I think the neighborhood was so undesirable back then because, as Sheila pointed out, the city pretty much just abandoned the area, and on top of that, you had redlining, which was the bank's practice of not making loans to small building owners and insurance companies not insuring certain buildings in certain areas, 
and the city raising taxes, uh, white flight to the suburbs, so the tax base shrunk. The feds refused to help the city. Uh, Gerald Ford to New York City dropped dead in 1976. Um, he had a number of effects, and of course, uh, a, a wave of heroin coming into the city. So it made the Lower East Side really just untouchable for investors. Um, landlords left. The city took over buildings. So you had this, this, this scene where people could actually live affordably, maybe a little dangerously, but it was it was... It was a special time where, like, I don't want to be nostalgic about how bad things were because it wasn't. <laughs> but I mean, out of all those bad things comes a scene. And, and because of low rent, because of low cost of living, it's affordable to actually have a scene. I think the powers that be caught on to that. And um, people I've talked to from the 60s who had their scene going on also mentioned the low rent, the low cost of living. Apartments are like maybe less than $20 a month for a full apartment. Um, they could do music, art, underground newspapers, revolutionary planning and shit and be a waitress like two nights a week and, and yeah. afford to live but, yeah exactly. or, or, or do what i did i moved i helped move uh this guy with his moving company i worked one or two nights a week and the rest of the time uh i, I had to myself and i had <laughs> enough money to survive and i you know i could start a band like i did with basquiat and i could be make paintings and make films and do all these things and it, it, the thing the thing that's really important to understand about new york at that time is um God, I forgot what I was going to say. I had too much to drink. <laughs> you, you had half a beer, lightweight. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, okay, so we, we, we all moved, you know, people who didn't grow up here, me and Michael Holman, I believe, are the only ones. Um, when we wanted, when we, I always wanted to come here. I, I mean, I grew up in upstate New York and New Jersey, and it was like this goal to live in New York. And I moved here. I made like $17,000 a year at high times, which was crap pay even back then <laughs> in 1988. And but we could do stuff like that. We could, you know, okay. I had a hot dog for dinner every night, and I wore those little Chinese flats from Chinatown that were four bucks. <laughs> I but you could that. do it. And like now, a, a kid, a kid growing up in the Midwest, like what the hell is he going to do when he's the weirdo in town? You can't start in the city like you could in the past. There were SRO hotels. Let's say you came from some other city, and your first place was maybe an SRO hotel. You could pay sixty bucks a week to live here to just start. Get a job, save a little money, get a better job, get a nicer apartment, move, start moving up. You can't come into the city from outside of the city as you could in the eighties, even yeah. up to the nineties. I mean, which, which by the way, by the way, kind of speaks to what I, I was going to say. You got At a chain time, back. <laughs> I, yeah, my, my brain cells have been put back together again. It's old age too. But but at the time, you know, in the in the seventies and early eighties, and even and even generations before that, New York had always been a mecca. For people who felt like marginalized wherever they lived, right. Right. They were the right. outsiders, the weirdos, the artists, um, the gay kids, the, the people that were picked on basically in high school knew instinctively that New York was a welcoming place. So we all came here uh, after, and it's tradition, you know, we came here after generation after generation built scenes. You know, New York it, 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 it is dependent on a lot of outsiders coming from around the country as well as from around the world. And today, and, and, and we built a scene that drew people from around the world, you know, made people want to come here. And the, the irony, of course, is that today, the people that are coming here are all the people that we were running away from. Yeah. That's very true, unfortunately. It's, it's, the, old, it's the old, ironic, horrible Catch-22. I mean, take, take the Lower East Side, um, where it's undesirable now. It's totally crime-ridden, heroin, drugs, crime... Uh, city withdrawing services, withholding services. So some people find that cool. They can afford to live here and make a scene. The scene attracts outsiders or transients uh, with money. And they say, wow, this is really cool. Then they want to start buying into New York City. Then real estate and values start increasing. The very thing that attracts the people with money 
is pushed out by the people coming into the city with their money. Right. So right. it's a hard, and it's happened. It happened in the West Village. It's happened. It's happening here in Brooklyn too. Well, well it I, happens in other yeah. cities too. For, I, of course. I also want to say, like, during the during the eighties as well. Uh, with all the stuff that was going on on the Lower East Side with bands and art and everything else, there was also scenes that were going on in other parts of New York City, especially in the Bronx. Rap music was coming out, hip-hop culture was coming out, breakdancing, um, uh, rappers, DJs. You know, this was a, another culture See? that was graffiti that was that was coming out of you know these so-called um slum areas you know the south bronx was another area that basically kind of got ignored um you know abandoned, abandoned during the, uh you know after the riots white flight during construction and you know all the stuff that moses robert did. moses <laughs> the, the king of the bx <laughs> you know and 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 all of these different scenes as well was yeah. developing it, you know. And uh, at some point, they also came together, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to have Michael here because Michael was part of, you know, bringing some of those scenes, kind of clashing Downtown. together and mixing together and, and and mixing them all up into, you know, this kind of cool gumbo. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I shout outs to Henry Chalfant, Marty Cooper, Fab Five, Freddy, uh, Charlie Ahern, myself. We were some of the uh, uh, kids hanging out on the downtown scene, on the art scene, mm -hmm. who recognized that there was something going on uptown, wanted to bring that culture downtown because, let's face it, uh, none of the downtown kids, none of the local media or international media that is based in New York wanted to venture into the Bronx. It's scary there. It's scary <laughs> there. So we were able to bring it downtown and give it a platform for the rest of the world. And I can tell you something. That hip-hop as we all know it today wouldn't exist, at least the way it does now, if it wasn't for the downtown scene bringing, bringing these, this new scene and this new other hidden culture downtown and giving it like a platform and a voice. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, I mean, it seems like that sort of did help hip-hop get mainstream acceptance. Like, you know, Debbie Harry rapping about Bad Five Freddy, even though that was kind of a bad rap. But yeah, were um, you involved with Downtown Eighty One by chance? In, in either the making. I'm of? in Downtown yes. Eighty One. Yeah, it? yeah. Where can I say? I'm, one of my favorite. That's going to be aired in the um, Morris Film Fest. Huh. <laughs> that's one of the, that's one of the films in the Morris uh, well, film that festival. stars Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yeah, yeah. Right, um, and I, it's really cool to try to identify certain spots where he's going by, and there's all rubble-strewn blocks. And yeah, yeah. in the East Village. Fun to kind of go back and say, look for an identifying feature in the film, and then run, run to the block and try to find exactly. Where it is. Yeah, check out Downtown '81. I mean, it's a fascinating film by by Glenn O'Brien, Ado, and Mary. Paul. 1981 from uh, 30, exactly 32 yeah. years ago. See the landscape; it's almost something out of a science fiction movie. After World War II, London after World War II, <laughs> Berlin, it's built up now. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's ugly. <laughs> but speaking of Jean-Michel Basquiat, we're going to hear a song from your band, Gray. Oh, you know them? My Thank friend Nick you. Taylor. Huh? You know my friend Nick Taylor then? Oh, you know Nick Taylor? Yeah. Worlds are colliding. We messages together. I know, Nick right? Oh, Matt's that's, wild. Listen, this is the nature of the Lower East Side, you see? Everyone Shout is out connected. to Nick Taylor, High Priest, man. Right DJ on. High Priest. He was the original <laughs> member of the band as well. And now Gray still exists. We just did a show out in the Hamptons at, at, at the at Parish the Hamptons. Museum. We did a show well, at the New Museum a couple of years ago. We did a show in D.C. Uh, we're going to be doing more shows here in New York Live. And at the point is, is that Gray still lives. It's myself, Michael Holman, and High Priest Nick Taylor. So what are we going to hear? Wow. We're going to hear a track called Drum Mode, which was actually made for Downtown 81. And it features myself... Nicholas Taylor, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and Wayne Clifford. All right, thanks. Joe, How take cool. it away. Wow. You like that? Oh, wow. That's the nature of the nature.
and we're back. Everyone's chowing down on good Roberta's pizza. Hey, so Michael Holman, how did you meet Jean-Michel? Oh, that's a wild, wild story. Um, quickly, um, a good friend of mine, Stan Peskett, English artist, Royal College of Art, knew me through the tubes. Before I came to New York, I was in this band called The Tubes, White Punks on Dope. Maybe oh, some of you guys oh, know about that. Me there. Yeah, we played <laughs> at the bottom line in 1975. Anyway, I was in that band, which was like my cutting my teeth in performance art and whatnot. And in um, sequin hot pants, I believe. Uh, yeah. Some- <laughs> did you see that picture? <laughs> yes, I did. I was a ludette. Anyway, so when I first came to New York, I'm a credit analyst at Chemical Bank. I'm a Wall Street banker, <laughs> wow. if you can believe that. And my boy, uh, Stan Peskett, English artist, we're hanging out on the weekend smoking herb, blah, blah, blah. And uh, one day I'm looking in the voice and I see a little notice about the Fab Five. It's a graffiti group, and it's represented by Fred Brathwaite, and it basically says, if you want your loft or place of business tagged up with graffiti burners, we're the ones for you. You can pay for it. So they were way ahead of the curve in terms of like putting graffiti in a commercial uh, setting. This is like 1979. So I call him up, invite him over. Now it's Stan, myself, and Freddie hanging out, smoking joints, talking about crazy (laughs) ideas. This is all like about January 79. We decide we're going to put together a party called uh, um, uh, Canal Zone Party because the place was right on Canal, block away from Hudson, the Hudson, uh, high, the, the, uh, the, the Henry Hudson, whatever, you know, the, wet, the Hudson River. And um, we throw this party and the whole idea of the party is to um, bring together these hip hop artists uh, of the Fab Five, like Lee Kionis, um, Slave, Mono, all these guys who were part of the Fab Five, and and then Freddie, of course, he was he was a he was an artist, but not really like them. He was more of their spokesperson, like a, a cheerleader, a hype the, man, a hype man, exactly. Hip hop lingo, I know. And so we're hanging out. We decide to throw this party. So they so the Fab Five do these giant burners on giant pieces of plastic, and and we're bringing the whole downtown scene to introduce these uptown artists, right? And so Jean hears about this. How he heard about it, I don't know. He's probably like. Uh, uh, 18 or 19 at the time he shows up like I want to be down too I want to be down too so we set up this big piece of photo paper and he does one of his Samo pieces and it's like oh my god that's Samo he does <laughs> which of the following are omnipresent A. Lee Harvey Oswald B. Uh, Coca-Cola logo uh, C. General Mallory D. Samo copyright and so he's doing this tag and I'm interviewing him afterwards and and I, I kind of like did this stupid interview where I'd ask questions and then before he could answer, I'd pull the microphone away and ask another. It was stupid. And you were I was excited. I was, I was excited. I was this kid from California. I didn't know what was cool. And, and wow. afterwards, I went up to apologize to him. And he said, that's cool, man. You want to start a band? And I said, sure. So we started Gray that night. Wow. We started Gray that night. It was April 29th, 1979. And, but, but what was also fascinating and really special about that Canal Zone party is that this is the first step and the first moment of bringing the, down, the uptown uh, Bronx culture, you know, specifically graffiti in this respect, downtown to introduce them to the downtown art scene and let that happen april 29th 1979 it's also the time the first day of the creation of gray so it was like a really seminal moment did you know did you know how super talented he was at the time or did you i mean i I know you respect all these guys but did you ever imagine his career would blow up like that yeah yes yeah jean-michel basquiat uh the best way to, to to describe him even the first time you meet him you knew it 
as a matter of fact, when I was goofing on him with the microphone and interviewing him, he did something that a lot of FOBs, friends of Basquiat, say that, yeah, that happened to me too. <laughs> he, when he realized that I wasn't going to let him really like answer the question, because Jean was like so focused on his career and become, blowing up, he was like, oh, somebody's going to be on video? Okay, I'll, boom, I want to be on video. <laughs> when, I, when he realized that I wasn't re- really going to let him answer any questions, his face drained of all emotion, judgment, reflection, and he became a mirror. And I was looking at myself being the fool. And it was like, whoa. Like right away I realized I was dealing with a realized being. I was dealing with some a superior human. And everybody that knew him will tell you the same thing. Like him or not, he could have been a, he could be a real bastard. Like him or not, you realized you were dealing with something, a, a human design that was like a few stages ahead. Trust me. He was like a Dalai Lama of art. He was a realized being. And everything about him, every, everything about his, 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 his body language, the way he spoke or didn't speak, the way he moved, the way he dressed, the way he comported himself told you that you were dealing with something other than what you I'd never I've met a lot of famous people in my life I've met a lot of important people in my life and I've never met anybody like Basquiat oh wow that's a great story <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah I mean, and you wrote the movie like um how, Julian I, Schnabel's movie how right. did you feel about that the way it came out well um you know it, it, I should note that Michael Holman's face has just drained <laughs> My face just drained now. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, you know, writers are the niggers of Hollywood. You know, I mean, everybody will tell you that. But, um, and every writer says that, you know, they butchered what I, my work, da 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 da. But that's different. This is butchering someone's life. But, but in this case, uh, you know, I, I'd love to, I'd love to read for your audience over the next three hours this, my screenplay, (laughs) the way I wrote it without it being, uh, changed and stepped on by Schnabel and other writers. Um, they, I, I just don't think that I don't think Schnabel really understood who Jean was, and he had this opportunity to make a film about somebody who was really above and beyond. I mean, it, it, first of all, I thank Schnabel for making the film because without that film, Basquiat's market would not be what it is today. I believe that also, the film did that. I mean, the the rumor is that Schnabel was also completely jealous of Basquiat. Well, that's what it would look like. That's I don't know what was in Schnabel's mind, but but based on. The way that the, the, the my script was altered, the way that the film looks now, the way that Jean's character had been emasculated in the film. I mean, Jean, how can someone be that powerful and that successful and be so wimpy the way he, the way Jeffrey Wright had been directed? It's impossible. The math it doesn't add up. Jean was like 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 the Human Torch. <laughs> when you met him on the street, you felt like you were like talking to like you know eight presidents in one person. Wow. You know, you you weren't talking you weren't talking to some like kind of wimpy guy who didn't really know what he wanted to do and was kind of finding himself. Jean was like the Human Torch, so the way that he's characterized in that film uh, is just so such a such a such a distortion of fact in history. Well, so what is this movie that's playing at the the Morris Festival with with Basquiat in it? That's a downtown eighty one. Downtown eighty one, which, which which Sheila and I saw together when it was re- first released. I guess like what ten 90, years ago now. Like ninety two. Whenever it was released, no, it was it was later than that. Ninety six. Ninety six. But we saw it at the tri- at, 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 on at, on Canal Street. 
and, and she and I were the only two people in the audience. It was like wow. the first or second. But you know, we grew up with that. I mean, I I didn't know Jean Michel personally, but he had influenced my life so much. And, and I remember when I was younger, I had gone to a a party at his house when he had done the Mary Boone show, and then Sheila. Well, I think years ago she used to have an original, but that's another story. Oh, <laughs> no. Now you can have a townhouse oh. in the well, West well, Village. I had, I had the invitation to his 30th birthday party, which was his final birthday party that was at Area, and my ex-boyfriend made a collage on top of it. <laughs> well, Jean-Michel was still alive. He thought it would be a nice, you know, departing gift. I hope oh, that boy. ex-boyfriend is dead now. He almost died. <laughs> he almost died. But evil kept him. So we've got three minutes. Let's um, catch up with Chris and figure out where we can find all of you guys. Chris, well, I think you're going to start publishing The Shadow again? A couple of things. Uh, the Shadow came out as an anarchist underground newspaper as an answer to the New York Compost and the Daily Snooze, all their crappy shit. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> these, these crappy shit newspapers that pose as, as, as the papers of the working class in New York City and, of course, they're anything but. They're owned by billionaires, so they promote a billionaire's agenda. New York Times, Daily News, and the New York Compost. So we came out as an antidote to those newspapers <clears throat> from 89 to 90 Compost. to 2008. <laughs> so for the five years, we have not been publishing, but we're going to start publishing this year, hopefully by the time of the 25th anniversary of the Tompkins Square riots. <clears throat> Excuse me. So July 28th, August 3rd, and August 4th, we're going to have three shows in Tompkins Square Park to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the August 6th, 1988 police riots in the park. Who's playing? Um, I have a little... I just happen to have a list of bands. Boy, thank you for asking, Judy. I didn't expect to ask that question. Wait, we only have a couple minutes. Can you just do the highlights of them? Well, um, well, okay, real quick. Roger Manning, Sewage, Transgender Jesus, Sexual Suicide, Ruckus Interruptus, <clears throat> Team Spider, and Joe Morella, the guy from Rage Against the Machine. Oh, wow. Um, August 3rd, David Peel, Hammer Brain, Porno Dracula, Ism, Bambi Killers, Coffin Daggers, Does the People from Nausea. Um, August 4th, Iconicide, Urban Waste, Nihilistic, Sick Fucks, Antidote, Reagan Youth. Um, um the whole point is, um, Leftover Crack is, I think, uh, out of town that, that month. The How th- can they be out of town? Like, Leftover Crack has other They gigs. travel. They are across the world. It's weird. They have a worldwide audience. But the point <laughs> I'm trying to make is, is we have, like, mostly 80s bands that were there during yeah. the riot days. We're trying to recreate the flavor of that time when people were pretty, like, you know, creative. And amazingly, 25 years later, they're still playing. It's fucking amazing. I can't <laughs> believe it. So we're going to couple that with after-show events, which will be some films at the, at the Morris Museum, which is inside C-Squat, an appropriate location, at 155 Avenue C between 9th and 10th Streets. Um, we'll be starting a film night on uh, thir- August 3rd, August 4th. Um, films will include Your House is Mine, which uh, documents the squat scene. Uh, Tom Crisco Park, Operation Class Warfare, put out by Paper Tiger TV, which gives you a good documentary on, uh, from the Tom Crisco riots to the closing of the park in 1992. Um, other films, including uh, ultimately ending the series with uh, Downtown 81 in about, I guess, what is it, four weeks of, uh, Seven of film? Days. Seven days. Seven days. Oh, one week of films at Morris. Um, we're going to have after shows at the Pyramid on Avenue A. Um, we're going to have Norman Siegel and Frank Morales uh, doing a panel discussion at Theater 80 on First Avenue and St. Mark's. Is there a website where people can find out all the information? Unfortunately, no website, but... Um, no website? Well, I'll, <laughs> But there's a Facebook page, right? There's a Facebook page. As much as I despise Facebook, it is a, it's a it's a an evil thing. Um, can someone read the Facebook page, please? I'm sorry. Oh, we all need glasses here. Give it to me. It's pretty, it's um, pretty, but well, it's a dim light in the studio. 
Yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's Where's the Braille version? Look up Times Square Park Riot 25th anniversary on Facebook. Michael, where can we find you? Go to Kickstarter and just type in Graffiti Rock. All right. Well, thank you so much, you guys, for Tompkins coming. Tompkins Square Park from what, 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. <laughs> August 3rd and 4th I, I, and July 28th. I, I want to put one plug. I, I have a, a short story that just came out about 1988 hip-hop. It's called uh, Jaguar and the Jungle Land Boogie, and it's in a book called Black Pulp, put out by Pro C Press. All right. Well, thank you so much, my substitute, Mike. Thank you. All right. See you next week. Thank you, Judy. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.